The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, episode number twenty-nine. And our guest, Jeff Altman, is an entertainer who focuses on sleight of hand card magic. He's also had an incredible career as a stand-up comic and actor. He's acted in such television shows as The Dukes of Hazard, Night Court, Baywatch, just to name a few. Jeff Altman has been a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, as well as more than 40 appearances on The Late Show with David Letterman. In fact, David Letterman called him the funniest person he knows. Esquire magazine called him a comic genius. He influenced Seinfeld, Letterman, Judd Apatow. It's a great pleasure to welcome magician, comedian, Jeff Altman. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It's, uh, that was quite an intro. Uh, actually, <clears throat> I'm in, I, I do, I, I do have a landscaping business and, uh, you've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, most of that's true. What I've done is I, I you know, I'm, I'm getting towards retirement age. I'm 60 uh, plus, and uh, you know, uh, I had a career in as an actor and a comic for 40 years, and uh, so I'm slowing down now and, and uh, concentrating on something that I learned from my dad and uh, a few guys in Baltimore and some of the greatest magicians in the country and the West Coast, and so I've taken that knowledge and started to entertain with it. You just mentioned your your father, Arthur. Alton. Yes. And as you said, he was uh, someone who dabbled in magic a little bit. I was hoping you could tell us about that. Well, my dad didn't dabble in it, really, Paul. He he, he was considered one of the best sleight-of-hand artists in the United States. Wow. And even though he didn't do it as a profession, he was sought after by anybody who came through Syracuse, New York, or upstate New York. All the great magicians would stop to see him. He was very, very close friends with a, a guy named Ed Marlowe who in, in the sleight-of-hand business was really well-known and really, really good with a deck of cards. And So when my father would fly to Chicago, he and Ed Marlowe would uh, get together and spend hours and hours and hours. So my father was really amazing with, with a pack of cards, and uh, he passed a little of that on to me. And when I went to college in Baltimore, uh, I, I met a couple of guys, two or three guys down there that were uh, top-notch guys, and uh, they, they showed me a lot of things. And then when I was 22, I drove out to the West Coast to try to maybe eke out a career at the Magic Castle, and uh, which is a famous place, at least in, in Hollywood. Uh, high up in the hills, overlooks all of Hollywood, uh, an amazing place. And uh, the, the greatest magicians in the country are drawn to that place like Mecca. So just for any of the listeners out there, define what exactly is sleight of hand? Sleight of hand would be anything with um, that you do with your hands close up as opposed to on a stage that would be considered, I guess, magical. You can use coins, silks, threads, uh, rope, uh, and, of course, uh, you know, playing cards. And that happens to be the thing that I've concentrated on the most. And I think it's a lot of people would say maybe the most fascinating uh, of, of all branches of uh, sleight of hand. And although I have a friend in New York named David Roth, who's uh, considered, uh, I guess, the best coin man who's ever lived, and uh, he, would, he would tell you very differently. 
<laughs> he would say coins are the supreme display of sleight of hand. But for me and a lot of guys like Ricky Jay and Steve Freeman and uh, those kind of Derek Delgadio, who has a show now in New York, cards are the primary uh, weapons. I'm hoping you can tell us a little about your parents. I read that you started drumming from a very early age. They were okay with that? Yeah. Well, uh, when I was about five years old or six years old, my dad put a pair of sticks in my hands because he knew how to play a little bit and started to teach me how to play the drums. And by the time I was six, I was okay. I was pretty good. Uh, Or seven. And I remember my father took me over to Syracuse University to the School of Music. And there was a famous uh, uh, drumming teacher over there named Klasgans, Mr. Klasgans. And uh, he said, look, we don't don't take kids here. What do you think this place is? We don't take kids. And then my father did like a coin trick for him, produced some coins. And he said, hey, that's pretty good. And you say your son plays the drums? And my father said, yes. And uh, I played a little for him, and he said, sign him up. So I started studying at Syracuse University when I was, I guess, seven years old. And then, uh, and then I went to a bunch of teachers who uh, didn't know their ass from their elbow, and uh, they made me play a lot of rudimentary, rudimentary uh, stuff for the next 10 years, and I wanted to play on a set of drums. So my parents eventually, drum by drum, piece by piece, bought me drums that I eventually assembled into a set of drums. And uh, when I was 15, my dad took me down to New York City, and I saw Buddy Rich. Well, my eyes just exploded. You know, I had never seen anything like this in my life. And uh, he became sort of one of my, I don't know if you want to say mentors, but one of my uh, close friends is, is uh, his life went on and my life went on. And uh, we uh, crossed paths at the comedy store in 1980. And I was on a show called Pink Lady and Jeff which was voted one of the 35th worst show in the country of all time by uh, TV Guide. And uh, Buddy was playing on a thing at the comedy store one night. And so I, uh, I was on the show and he was on the show and he thought I was kind of funny because I was doing stand-up at the time. And uh, we became good friends and that lasted until he passed away in 1987. And I can remember holding his hand in the hospital and kind of saying goodbye to him. And so from the time I was 15 to the time I was, I guess, about 40, he, uh, he was an icon to me. He was uh, uh, someone who not only I respected tremendously for his ability to play the drums, but for his showmanship and his quick wit and his funniness. So he was a definite influence on me. How would you describe Buddy Rich? Buddy Rich, the guy. Buddy was a sweetheart. Um, You had to get to really know him to know that about him. You had to get down deep inside. And uh, to the lay public in general, he was kind of a, you know, ornery, kind of uh, fast-tempered, uptown, hip, fast-talking guy who may not give you the time of day if he didn't feel like it. But if you became his friend, it was an entirely different story. And I was lucky enough, I guess, to be called his friend. And um, he, he was, um, 
I can't describe to you how good he was at what he did because it's hard, you know, you'd, you'd want to compare him to somebody else in another field. I suppose he would be like, well, in, in the world of, he was like, I don't know, the Mozart of drumming. He, he, he could play anything and everything. He was the catalyst that took bebop drumming and, and jazz drumming into what we now see rock and roll drummers doing. And, and hip-hop drummers and stuff. Now, B- Buddy only had one bass drum pedal. Today, most drummers have, have two bass drums uh, or two drum b- bass drum pedals. Buddy could reproduce that with, with one foot. He was incredibly, his, his technique was maybe the best of anybody who's ever sat down behind a set of drums. I, I just can't go on enough about how good he was as a drummer. To give you one example, when he rehearsed with his band, but he could not read music. He couldn't read a note. And the way he would go about playing the drums with his band is he would listen to an arrangement, a long arrangement, sometimes six and seven minute arrangements. And he would hear it one time and then go up and play it perfectly. He had kind of a photogenic memory for, for music. And, uh, I mean, I just can't say enough about the guy. He was... Uh, I was just so lucky to have known him and seen him play so many times. But to answer your question, Paul, he, he was short-tempered. His bus tapes that he made or that they made, he didn't make them. He knew about them, but uh, <laughs> some guy on the bus taped him going crazy at his band. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or yeah. heard of them, Oh yeah, but they're infamous. And, uh, that did not describe who Buddy was. He was that, and he was a lot of other things. He loved his family. He loved his daughter deeply and his grandson, and they were, they were the pride and joy of his life. And uh, anyone who knew Buddy really well had the same opinion I do. We're joined by sleight-of-hand card artist Jeff Altman on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. You mentioned going to California. Was that an intimidating thing to do? Not really, only because I knew it was the only way I was going to earn a living in my life. I knew that some form of show business, probably magic, this is when I was 22, some form of magic, probably cards, was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I was going to be a magician, a funny guy that did impressions and did card tricks and was hunkered down at the Magic Castle. That all changed one night when I got up at the comedy store in 1974. I was just a kid. And there weren't enough people to go on that night. It was a Saturday night, and if you can believe this, there was not enough comics to fully carry the whole evening at the Comedy Store in Hollywood, 1974. Uh, I think the month was June. And I walked over to the club owner, Mitzi Shore, and I said, uh, you know, I do a few impressions. I was wondering if I could go up on stage. And she said, well, Altman, is that your name? You're Jeff Altman? All right, go up on stage. So I went up on stage, and I did actually what was mostly David Fry's act. And... Uh, did some impressions, and she said, well, you can come back again. And that's how I started my my career, or changed my career ideas about going from magic 
to comedy, and now in my 60s, back to magic. It occurs to me that you encountered and have met many, many very funny people. Who is the funniest person you've ever met? I think it would come down to two people. Just riding along in an automobile, going down the highway, there is no one funnier than Dave Letterman. I mean, he's just, his mind is so fast, his use of the English language so unique, and his brain so hot that he can, he, he can make a joke out of anything if he wants to, virtually. The other person I would mention would be Jonathan Winters. And he's the funniest person I ever viewed, watched on TV as a kid, and then subsequently lucky enough that I was in my life, I got to meet him and actually do a Showtime special with him. I think in 1989 or 88, I did a Showtime special with my, him and Franklin Ajay and uh, one other person who I can't remember right now. But um, I'd say Letterman and Winners. It occurs to me that there have been a few people in the history of entertainment who have this passion for magic but are thought of as comedic. The first one that comes to mind would be Woody Allen. Do you suppose there's a connection between comedy and magic? Not only is there a connection between comedy and magic, but there's a connection between the drums and comedy. A lot of comedians, take Carson as an example, Johnny Carson, who I knew a little bit. I did the show with him once and uh, saw him on several uh, social occasions. In fact, Buddy Rich early on introduced me to Johnny. But here's a guy who was a good drummer and a good magician. And, I mean, one of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life was, it was 1991, and I was on a show called Nurses on NBC, and we were all at the affiliates convention. And somebody was whispering around that Johnny Carson was somewhere backstage. And no one knew why, because he wasn't supposed to be there. So I got backstage because I was going to perform there too. It was at Radio City Music Hall in 1991 at the affiliates convention for NBC. And I kind of sidled up to Johnny. I had somebody go get me a deck of cards and I kind of crept up next to him and I said, hey Johnny, you ever do one of these? And I did a card move really badly, purposely, so that he would speak up and say something. And sure enough, he did. And he took me backstage, I mean really backstage, back of the backstage, and we had this little card session together for about five to ten minutes, and it was fascinating. And he was really good at what he did. He didn't do a lot, but he, what he did, he did very well. And then I, I don't know if I did a couple of things for him. And Well, anyway, after that was over, he walked out on stage and announced his retirement. And uh, it was kind of a moment, momentous day, not only in the lives of the affiliates, but in mine. I have to ask, I listened in preparing for this interview to your appearance on the Carson podcast, which was a great interview, but you do an incredible Johnny Carson impersonation. Oh, well, thank you. Well, let's, if you don't mind, let's hear it. Ah, geez, we're talking, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, very strange. We're, uh, talking to, uh, Paul Leslie, and, uh, 
what a great guy. I mean, he calls you up on the phone, he talks to you. It's uh, just that simple. <laughs> now, the, the only thing that I do unique with Johnny's voice is that I can do the three versions of Johnny Carson. There, there was the early Carson vintage 1962. And, Paul, that sounded like this. Okay. Hi, this is Johnny Carson, and we're here tonight, and we have a great show for you. I think you're going to like it. Buddy Rich, Rich Little, Little Richard, and Richard Pryor are all here tonight. <laughs> now, we, now we move to about 1974. Johnny has gone through about uh, 120,000 cartons of, of Paul Malls, and his voice started to change. It was a little like this. Uh, tonight's uh, show is uh, a little different. We have uh, Zsa Gabor is going to come on here and do something or other. <laughs> then we moved to 1991 when he took me backstage, and we had the card session. And it was kind of like this. Uh, geez, Jeff, we ought to get you on the uh, show and uh, uh, see what you can do with, with a deck of cards. <laughs> oh, man, it's just it's, it's spot on. <laughs> That's well, thank great. you. Wonderful. Hold on, let me get my composure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the the show, and you you weren't shy at all about talking about Pink Lady and Jeff. You said it was the it was voted. I think you said the thirty fifth worst show in the history of American television. Well. It marked the end, Paul, of Fred Silverman's career. And Fred Silverman was a, kind of a genius when it came to programming television. But he was given a tough assignment. RCA owned NBC at the time, and RCA owned these girls called Pink Lady. Two girls who sang in Japanese. They were from Japan. They were like the Beatles in Japan. They were to the Japan what the Rolling Stones were to us in America, you know. And so, I mean, I viewed some of their concerts, and they had it, you know, 100,000 seat. They were just, they, they, were, they were gods. And RCA thought if they could break them in the United States, wow, what, what, how, this would be terrific. Anyway, he, uh, Fred Silverman decided he was going to solve that problem by getting a young American comedian and these girls who did not speak English, even though they, we were told they did, and um, put, them to, put, put us together and made a TV show out of it. And, of course, it was awful uh, because he, he didn't let the girls do their thing in Japanese to begin with. And finally, I complained and complained. I said, let these girls sing in their own language. I said, they're fantastic, and some of their music is fantastic. So instead of singing old, tired-out American songs, they, they started on the, like the fourth show to do their own stuff. But we were canceled on show number five. And this is with a 24 rating. You know, if, some, if a show got a 24 today, it would be miraculous. But uh, in those days, uh, if you got a 24, you were getting beaten by somebody on another network uh, who had a 36 share or a 50 share or something, you know. Anyway, we got canceled. It was a great experience. I got to work with Jerry Lewis. I got to work with Sid Caesar, Red Buttons, and on and on. I mean, a lot, a lot of famous people came on that show, strangely enough. 
and uh, Larry Hagman came on and did sketches and stuff. I mean, it was great. It was a lot of fun, you know, and I was making a lot of money for a kid that was 27, and it uh, kind of started me, got me going in show business. So I had, I had, a, I had fun and uh, was able to buy a house and uh, got married and uh, had a kid, and, uh, you know, my life started to take some sort of shape as opposed to some guy who was, you know, up at the Magic Castle going, Hey, 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 excuse me, bartender, can you get me out of that stock and soda? <laughs> well, what did you learn from that experience with that show? Keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. <laughs> even if it's even if it's not really good, try to make the best of it. And don't argue with people. Uh, you know, uh, just try, try to be, uh, you know, a nice person to everybody. And I, I think I was, except I kept trying to get the stuff to be better. You know, you can't help it if you're an entertainer and you, you, you have an idea for something that's better. That's why I wasn't on Nurses the full run of the show. I was only on Nurses the first year because they, they said they didn't know how to write for me. And like a stupid jerk, they had sent me over a page of dialogue that was just awful. I mean, they, they, they had used roadkill jokes like in every show. And here comes a page over to the stage that I was on. <laughs> It was filled with roadkill jokes. So I said, I can't do this. Send it back. Well, next season I was out, you know, back doing stand-up comedy in clubs, you know, for drunks. <laughs> Something that I thought was very interesting is that you went to the university to study social and behavioral sciences. I think that fits in with a lot of things. Tell us a little bit about that interest of yours. Oh, it was uh, it wasn't an interest at all, Paul. It was it was a way to graduate. Ah. I, I, I uh, when I went to college, uh, I uh, there were area majors. You could major. You didn't have to major in math or science or uh, 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 biology or chemistry. Or you could you could take an area major. And one of the area majors was social and behavioral sciences, which was a lot of philosophy and psychology, which I kind of enjoyed anyway. So. I guess that would be the mainstay of my interest would be philosophy and psychology, primarily psychology. And there were a lot of important people at this place in the 70s uh, where I went to college, and uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a good experience. It was a great experience. Oh, by the way, I, went, I, went to, I was lucky enough to get into Johns Hopkins. I talked my way in because I, I was pretty good at I wrestled in high school, and I, I was very good at it. And one of the only things I can say I was very good at. And that's, that got me into Johns Hopkins, and uh, I wrestled there for a couple of years and, uh, uh, you know, was around a lot of people that were mostly smarter than me. So it was, it was a really important experience in my life, being in college. Drumming, wrestling, a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> you <Yep>. know? <laughs> yep. A lot of energy. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of that's kind of the way I am. I've always been full of energy. You know, I drove my mother and father nuts. I remember telling my father when I went to the coast, Paul. You know, I said, I said uh, to him, I'm going out to the coast, Dad, to become a, a, an entertainer. And he looked at me and he said, Well, what the hell are you going to do when you get out there? <laughs> so they didn't have a lot of confidence. So I'm sure when I showed up on Pink Lady and Jeff, they were happy anyway. <laughs> and these days, you live in North Carolina? What brought you out there? I do. 
it's a fascinating story. Um, it, uh, I, uh, I went to high school with a girl named Bonnie Goldstein. And Bonnie Goldstein was one of the best-looking girls in the class. And I, I was always too scared to ask her out because she was a little taller than me, I think. And uh, we kept in touch after, college, after high, high school and, and after college. And uh, we, we always stayed in touch with each other. And Bonnie was the person who always would tell people from high school and stuff that when I was going to be on Letter, the Letterman show. Well, three years ago, she came to visit me in, in uh, Las Vegas where I was performing at the Tropicana doing stand-up. She was with her daughter. And to make a long story less boring, we fell in love. And she and her daughter were hunkered down here in North Carolina, and I had had enough of L.A. I was just sick of L.A., you know. I mean, look what's going on out there now with the fires. It's just, it's awful. It's, it's you know, I, I feel sorry for those people who have had to suffer through the fires out there, and I'm just lucky that I, I'm not in that, those fires because I have a friend whose street was burned down except for his house in Ventura. Anyway... Bonnie and I love and I decided to move here. And uh, I, I now live in a community in a place called Wendell, North Carolina. And there's a lot of people with Confederate flags walking around going, Hey, how about you dropping them panties? Take them right on off, buddy. <laughs> uh, so what, on the, on the other side, what is it you like about North Carolina? Well, it's, it's a lovely state. I mean, it's a beautiful state to begin with. There's an east. I mean, there's kind of three or four parts of the state. There's the coast, which is uh, interesting. There is the Raleigh-Charlotte cities and sort of central. Those are the two main cities. And then in the west, you have Asheville, which is like uh, this kind of, you know, hippie colony of about uh, 150 people. And that's you're into the mountains by the time you get to Asheville. And it's just very beautiful. So, And I like the people. The people down here are very friendly. People seem to get along better than they do in big cities. They're nicer to the average person, I think, on the street anyway. You know, people say hello. You catch a person's eye. It ain't like New York City where you're walking. You keep your eyes, you know, looking at the pavement. You look into people's eyes here, and that's, that's, a, that's a difference. So what brought you to North Carolina would be love. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. What is it about Bonnie that made you well, fall in love? I have a predilection for heavy women, and Bonnie weighs 420 pounds. <laughs> so when I knew there was a... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. Although for a second I thought, what? Wait? <laughs> Bonnie is just the greatest person I've ever met, a female, and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, she knows me from when the time I was 15. Uh, I mean, how does it get better than that? You know, she knows everything about me and, and still makes to say, I love you, and that's a tough thing to do. So, anyway, she's just a, a wonderful person. She was very successful on her own in uh, radio and uh television sales uh, when she lived in Miami and this for both of us is our third marriage I was married twice before and so was Bonnie so this is the, the charm 
hopefully. Undoubtedly. (laughs) Right, of course. What was it that made you think, you know, i got to get back to the magic? Well, I hadn't written a new joke since Gunsmoke. (laughs) 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 Oh, I told one on myself there. You know, I was, I, the, criticize my own self about stand-up, I would say it would have been the fact that I got torn away from the stage, the stand-up stage, so many times in my career because of commercials that I did and television shows that I did. I, I never had a, a long periods of time to sit down and write. So I wasn't terribly, what's the word? It begins with a P, Paul. P. Hmm. You weren't terribly... Uh, what is it? I didn't have... Let me just say this. I didn't have a giant amount of material. I had a good hour, and that was it. And I stayed with that for too long. You know, now people still want to hear it now when I go on stage, and they're hearing it for the second time. It's a whole generation different of people that are hearing it. But my comedy isn't really tied to, you know, what's going on right now. It's kind of general comedy. You know, I talk about my dad and his pants over his head. <laughs> and... uh can't think of that word that begins with P. Someone out there will have to call in. <laughs> yes, call in now on the Paul Leslie Show, and if you do, you'll be given a brand new car. <laughs> I don't know. I just uh, I think the time is right now that I'm living in North Carolina and I can't go out for commercials or TV shows anymore is to market something that I can do from here, and that would be stand-up to a smaller degree strange that we're talking today because I'm performing tonight for a large corporation, um, Card Magic. I mean, this is quite a coincidence that we're talking today and I'm, I'm doing a show tonight. Not a show. It's called Walk Around Magic. You circulate among 300 people doing sleight of hand. It's, it's, it's an interesting endeavor, and uh, it's, uh, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to do it when I do it. And I think that maybe I was getting tired maybe of doing stand-up, you know, having to, you know, do two shows a night every night for, you know, 14 shows a week uh, when you go to a club or uh, uh, Vegas or... And I had lost touch. I had lost my my touch with a lot of the clubs. When I was on uh, Nurses in 1991, I had lost uh, some of my, I guess, people that I was really in touch with around the clubs in the country. My agent became Rosie O'Donnell's manager. You know, things were just so... I I started thinking more and more about magic, and then when it came time to kind of, you know, be 65 years old, you know, it's you can't go up on stage and do the same stuff that I used to do when I was, you know, 23, which is walking up on stage and saying, you know, how many of you people here tonight wanted to try this silly little party gag? And I would smash my head on a bar stool and, you know, go flying. So, you know, if I do that now, you know, people look up on stage and go, hey, is he hurt? Is he, let's, someone call an ambulance. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess it's just the right time to, 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 to do this, to make this switch, you know. And, you know, I don't need the money. I've got $100 million in the bank. <laughs> nice. Paul. Nice. <laughs> No, I don't have a hundred million dollars anywhere. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm okay. I don't have to work, 
but I enjoy doing the, the sleight of hand. And I enjoy staying in touch with the people who do it. And I enjoy attending magic conventions. That's really an, an interesting. And I, le- I was fortunate enough to lecture uh, at one uh, about four years ago. I lectured at the Buffalo 52, as it's known, in, in Buffalo, New York. And I uh, ha- had the time of my life. So magic is kind of like a fraternity in some respects. Without a hmm. doubt. It's, uh, it's uh, absolutely a fraternity, especially as you get to the higher levels of, of magic. You, you then have an, and this happened because, you know, I would always introduce myself as the son of Arthur Altman, and that got me in with a lot of magicians when I was young that I never would have been able to approach had my dad not been my dad. I got to know most of the great card card handlers in the country, and uh, in fact, two of my closest friends are supreme card handlers. With uh, three of my best friends, really, are, are magicians who do do primarily card magic. Ricky Jay, who you may have heard of, uh, Steve Freeman, who you haven't heard of, who is of my generation the best card man that I, I, I've ever seen, and a fellow named Dean Stern in, in uh, Bangor, Maine, who's an all, just an all-around terrific magician. Those are three of my closest friends. So, yeah, it, is, it becomes fraternal, and it becomes uh, uh, something that uh, camaraderie kind of rules the day. You know, I, I have a, an awful lot of fun talking to people on the phone. There's a great magician, a couple of great magicians here in, uh, in the greater Raleigh, North Carolina area. And so I, I spend some time with uh, one of them. And, uh, in fact, we're going to have lunch uh, um, this coming Monday. So it is. It, you're absolutely right, Paul. It, it does become fraternal and, and uh, friendships from it and learn things from it. And, uh, you know, it ain't like exactly. Well, it is a little bit like comedy, you know, uh, in terms of that's my joke. He stole my <laughs> joke. You know, well, the same thing is true in magic. You know, that's my move. I, I came up with that move. So there, there is the same kind of uh, holding dearly to what is yours and what you've created and, and not seeing it spread around with somebody else's name on it. True of jokes, true of card tricks. What is the experience like for you? Like tonight, when you're doing the, these these performances, what is it like from your point of view? It's different. You know, I just, as I say, I just started doing it professionally and uh, it, it's, it's, it's not terribly difficult. You just got to have, you know, uh, a, a lot of hair on your chest and you got to wa- be able to walk up to people and say, hey, think of a card, think of any card in the deck and then proceed from there or walk up and say, hey, do you play cards? And you have to do this over and over and over as you walk around a group of 300 people. So that's kind of what it's like. And it, it, it's, it's, for some people, it's, it's, it's a difficult, but I, you know, the fact that I've been on stage for 40 years and I've, you know, you know, I've had to kind of swallow your, your guts and your anxiety, this isn't terribly difficult. But it involves continually walking up to different people's and getting their attention somehow, and getting the focus on a deck of cards. And tonight, that's going to be a little challenging, because there's going to be a DJ there, so I'm going to have to be doing this over Hmm. some music. So 
I'll, I'll probably be going, Hey, think of a card! <laughs> Is it a ten of diamonds? You know, there'll be a lot of that going on tonight. Yeah. But I'll, I'll probably just get dead drunk before I go and you won't have to worry about a thing. Are you a drinker? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Somebody that I wanted to talk about is one of your friends. I think he's kind of underrated as a comic. I think he's just a genius. I mean, many other people do too. But I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about John Witherspoon. Well, Johnny Witherspoon and I and Letterman and a guy named George Miller were kind of a foursome in the late 70s in terms of hanging out together. I mean, we'd all go have dinner, and Tom Dreesen as well. We'd all go have dinner. We'd all go bowling, play racquetball. You know, whatever uh, idle time there was, we'd try to fill it up somehow. But those were the guys I hung around with in the early 70s. And Johnny was just always great. You know, Johnny Witherspoon was funny. He's a terrific actor. Does some great characters. I can't say enough about John Witherspoon. You know, he's uh, he, he is underrated. But you know, I don't feel sorry for him. He's he's out there making a lot of money. You know, he fills clubs up easily, and you know, he's I think he's on, every season is on a new television show. So God bless him, he's doing well. But you're right, underrated. You mentioned this foursome. What are some of your memories from that time? What was the dynamic like with you guys? Well, it, it made an easy transition, I think, to get up out of bed and go up to the comedy store, you know, at, at 11 o'clock to do your spot, and there'd be Dave and, and Annie Witherspoon and uh, uh, George Miller. Uh, there is an underrated comedian. I'm sure people listening may, may remember George from his probably 60 appearances on Dave's show. And he wasn't always hilarious on Dave's show. But he was, I think, the single best joke writer of all of us. I mean, he had a marvelous sense of humor, very dry, and very funny. And so you go up to the comedy store at 1030 at night, and there'd be Dave and Johnny and Tom Dreesen and Franklin Ajay and... Uh, God, I could go on and on for hours about, you know, Leno would be there and uh, on and on and on. You know, and as, then as the 80s, you know, Seinfeld was became uh, apparent and uh, a host of other guys started coming from New York City to the West Coast because the West Coast now had the Tonight Show. And that, as I said, was, you know, uh, like the Magic Castle for Magic, the Tonight Show was the mecca for comedians. You know, you could just get on the Tonight Show with Johnny you could, uh, you could, you could, uh, <laughs> you know, call it call it a career. It could make you, yeah, yeah. And in one night, it, it it could change your life. And uh, there's never been a, a show like the Tonight Show, or the Letterman Show, for that matter. What you get now are derivatives of, of both of those people, I think. And uh, not to say that the guys that are doing it now aren't terrific, because they are, but. I think the latest book written about Dave was, you know, the last great late night host. Or I'm not sure of the name of the book. Maybe you know it. Paul. I think it's. I think it's that it's the last great, maybe the last great giant of late night, something like that. 
by Jason Zenoman, I think. I'm trying, it's it's something like yep. that. Right. But, uh, I mean, like Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel for instance, who I think is terrific. Jimmy Kimmel. Right. Does a great job. But, uh, again, he will even tell you, I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for Dave Letterman. So we all owe Dave a tip of the hat for, for what he did, and to Johnny, uh, you know, take the hat off. Yeah. If you could go back and speak, hypothetically, of course, to a young Jeff Altman, what would you say to him? Uh, pack up and, and, and go to North Carolina. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I would tell him, I would tell him to uh, enjoy the process of trying to eke out a career in this business, that every step is, 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 should be an enjoyable step. Watch your temper. Be nice to everyone. Treat people like you'd like to be treated. And that isn't to say that I was a horrible guy, but I had a quick temper as a young guy, and I, I, uh, I, I wanted to be the best I could. And when I was on TV shows, you know, and they handed me a page of uh, roadkill jokes, you know, I, 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 I was hard to work with. And I would tell myself to be easier to work with. And uh, when, when you were doing a... a a commercial for I forgot the product. I did tons of commercials back in the eighties, and um, I remember in one scene they had to spray water all over you. And the Screen Actors Guild stipulates that you must put at least room temperature water on somebody. You can't spray water, you know, uh, of forty degrees on someone who, you know, like like it's raining and you're in the commercial and it's got to rain and you've got to get wet. You, you've got to have warm water. Well, in this one commercial, I remember the water was like ice. It was like tap water. And, uh, you know, I was freezing, and I, and I spoke up, and uh, uh, I was probably a little too noisy, and I got into a fight with the director. And But I, I was lucky, Paul, in that I had my fingers in, in, in a lot of different pies, and that was maybe the reason that I never became a big star, but it was a reason that I always worked. And I always had, you know, $5 in my back pocket, you know, because I, I, I did so many different things. I did, you know, commercials. I did television. I did stand-up. I tried to do as much as I could to try to fill out. You take a guy like Letterman, he could have cared less whether he was on a commercial or could have cared less whether he did an episode of Baywatch. He wanted to, he knew when he came to the West Coast what he wanted to do. And I didn't exactly I knew I wanted to be in show business. I wanted to perform and make people laugh and have a good time and entertain. But I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do until about 19, probably about 1978, 79. That's a long time ago. Not that long. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the best thing about being Jeff Altman? Well, that I have, a, that I now have a a life uh, that I, I can be proud of. I've taken my own advice to some degree, as I told you uh, a moment ago, and uh, I've laid back. I'm married to somebody who I love completely and thoroughly. I have a daughter uh, who's in New York City, who's successful and and uh, just a wonderful girl, uh, and an ex-wife, the mother of my daughter, who I'm still very friendly with, and. You know, so there's still a semblance of a, a kind of a, a large family that exists here in, the, in my home and um, an extended kind of family. And 
it doesn't get better than that. If you can have a family that you enjoy, I mean, it just sounds like an old guy talking, but it's it's really the truth. If you if you love your family, I mean, there's two things. Freud said it. He said, you know, the way to be happy is to love and to work, and he was right. Wow. Yeah. For anyone who's out there, wherever they might be, what would you say to our listening audience? Um, geez, that's a great question. Um, I can say anything I want? Absolutely. Don't go too crazy. Vote to impeach. I repeat, vote to impeach. Not terribly popular down here in the southern states, but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, I, I was, you know, kidding. But I, I mean, I wasn't kidding, but I was kidding. And uh, I, I would say to people, you know, find love and work. Find something that makes you happy to do with your hands or your mind. And find someone to love that will love you back. That would be about it. Well, anyone out there, if they want more information, they can visit jeffaltmanmagic.com. jeffaltmanmagic.com. Mr. Altman, thank you so much for spending time with us. i got to tell you, Paul, I've, I've done a lot of interviews in my lifetime, and this has been one of the more different, more intimate uh, talks I've ever had. So thank you, Paul. Oh, my pleasure, and thanks for saying so. I appreciate that. Well, if you're ever doing a magic show in Atlanta, I would love to, you know, of any kind, I would love to see it. Yeah. I'll I'll do a little trick uh, over the phone. How about okay. that? Okay, great. Um, Please do. I want you to think of a card, Paul. Uh, a card may come to mind. It may have your favorite number on it. It may have your favorite suit on it. Okay. Are you thinking of the card? I'm thinking of it. Okay. Is it a cherry-colored card? Cherry meaning red, of course. Yes, indeed. Is it a diamond? Yes, indeed. Are you thinking of the seven of diamonds? No. That concludes this portion of the Paul Leslie Show. <laughs> we'll be right back after these commercials. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. And I'd like to take a moment to invite you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to build up the numbers over there. After a certain amount of time, all of the interviews that are on this podcast are going to be archived there. Just go to youtube.com slash thepaulleslie. That's all I've got. Take care of yourself. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>